Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. I grew up at home with my parents and I was the only child and we grew up in a small house in Cork. My father never had a car because the work that he did, he was a confectioner. He used to get on his bike every morning at half past five and be in the Marina Bakery at work for six o'clock. He often worked extra hours to do overtime to earn enough to make a living. I was very conscious then when it came to his retirement years he didn't have enough saved when he fell into ill health and my mother fell into ill health. So I suppose all of that has had an impact on me. So there would be definitely a desire and sort of thing that I learned from him about the need to provide and to need to have a bit of a safety net there as well. Well, as the saying goes, he is one of the hardest working people in showbiz. No question. Matt Cooper presents a two and a half hour radio show every day on Today FM. He writes two newspaper columns. He presents not one, but two podcasts. He writes books. He's a father of five and he still manages to fit in a 26 handicap golf habit. Lord knows what else he packs into his day. Matt's work ethic has always fascinated me. Um, I thought I worked hard. People often say that I do work hard, but I'm a positively a sloth in comparison to Matt Cooper. And in our chat in this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast, he opens up about what drives him to work so hard, how he plans his day in order to get everything done, and the times when he came very close to burnout and the impact that this has had on his health. But we also chat about so many other things that I think you're going to really enjoy. Working behind the bar was terrific for actually getting to know how to talk to people and how to deal with different people and also developing that ability to talk to people of all different kinds and at different levels of sobriety as well. If there was one thing that nearly tipped me over the edge, it was doing the TV show four nights a week. Television probably demands a bit more adrenaline than radio does. And I found that I wasn't sleeping properly afterwards. I'd still be well, well awake two or three in the morning. I was trying to exercise, but I do blame that schedule for developing in type 2 diabetes. There's one or two prominent broadcasters who I will definitely not name, but I watch them at times or listen to them, and I think, you're not interested, you're pretending. Well, if you're not interested, why should I be interested as a viewer? Interesting that you said viewer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not listener. (laughs) Matt's latest book is called Who Really Owns Ireland? It's a great read. And we'll hear all about that too in just a few minutes' time. But first, it's awards season and Irish actors are playing an absolute stormer. Killian Murphy, Barry Keoghan, um, Andrew Scott, Paul Meskell. And in the background, of course, you have all these great actors like Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. Banshees was last year. And Donald Gleeson and all these great Irish actors. It's fantastic. I wonder what my podcasting friends think about this. Hello, and you're very welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, the movie awards season is upon us, and it's a time of great Irish success so far for young Irish actors. I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Ireland's most respected showbiz correspondent. That is, of course, the great John Giles. Hi, Eamon. John, it's great success for these young Irish actors BAFTAs, Golden Globes, Oscar nominations. Yeah, they're doing well, Eamon. You have the lad Killian Murphy up yeah, there. Yeah, 
Oppenheimer, yeah. John. He's great, apparently, is he? No, I never knew a Cork lad invented the atomic bomb, Eamon. It's great, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. convincing, apparently, yes. Like, you've, you've got the lad Meskel, you've got the lad um, Barry Keoghan, Andrew Scott. Yes. John, uh, you've got Keoghan, lad Keoghan, where did yeah. he come out of, John? I hadn't heard of him before. Yeah. He was the lad that was killing cats in, in, in Love Hate, Yeah, Eamon. that's right, yeah. that's right, that's yeah. right, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. no, he didn't just kill him, John, no. did he? He really did a job on him. No, no, he blew the shite out of him. Maiman. Yeah, I know. He riddled them. He riddled them. Oh, he riddled them. Yeah, Why are yeah. these young Irish actors so successful, John? They're good lads, Eamon. They're good lads. I have a problem, though, with some of the young Irish Yeah, go lads. on. What's the problem with them, John? Well, they, 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 they have a habit of taking their todgers out, Eamon. Too they're much. todgers, John. Yeah, too much, Eamon. Too much. Too much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have the lad there, Keoghan. He's dancing around with his todger out in Saltburn there. And, and is it and good, John? The tod- Oh no, no, it was great, Eamon, but he didn't he didn't need to take it out, the Todger. Yes. You know, with the lad Meskel no. and to- normal people, he's taking his Todger out as well, and Andrew Scott yes. and Meskel there. They've all got the Todgers John, out. John, does Killian Murphy take his Todger out in Oppenheimer? No, no, he didn't need to tame it. It was a nuclear no. bomb. Nuclear no, bomb. great performance I'm hearing, John. Great performance, Eamon, and that's what I'm saying. John Wayne never took his Todger out, Eamon. No, no, things no. have changed, John. Okay. Well, thanks to John, and good luck to Barry and Killian and Andrew and Paul. Todgers are not. See you later, folks. So, let's get to my chat with broadcaster and author, and my colleague in Today FM for many, many years now, Matt Cooper. As I mentioned earlier, he's such a busy person. I was curious, on top of everything else he does in an average day, how he manages to fit in the laborious process of writing a book as well. So, Matt, actually, do you know where I want to start? I'd love people to get into your heads, because everybody knows... You know, everybody hears you on the radio and they know broadly how you question people and from what perspective you're coming. But I'd like people to get to know you a little bit more and and from the perspective of, let's say, a book, right, when you're writing a book. So, like, for example, let's say, who really owns Ireland? How do you write that book? Bearing in mind, if you bear in mind my listeners, you have to do the last word. I know you work out. I know you like to exercise. You've got Aileen. You've got five kids. You have 25 columns in newspapers. Um, Two columns in newspapers. Don't exaggerate, Mario. And two podcasts. So how do you do it? How do you write a book like that? Well, sir, I don't do television anymore. And if there was one thing that nearly tipped me over the edge, it was doing the TV show four nights a week uh, with Ivan, who I'm now doing the podcast with. And that's where it will allow me to explain why the podcast rather than the TV show. Uh, the TV show, in retrospect, could have been very damaging to my health. I think it might have been damaging to my health and that I did develop type 2 diabetes during the run of doing the show. And it was down to having done the radio show, going to do the television a few hours later. Television probably demands a bit more adrenaline than radio does because of the nature of being under the cameras and whatever. And I found that I wasn't sleeping properly afterwards. I'd still be well well awake two or three in the morning. So maybe in that time I'd be reading or I'd be watching television or doing a bit of writing or whatever. And, you know, the whole idea was I'd sleep on in the morning. But the reality was people are going in and out the doors and stuff and you're woken up and you're broken sleep and you're awake. So I wasn't sleeping properly. I was trying to exercise. I was trying to be healthy diet. But I do blame that schedule for developing in about a year into it the type 2 diabetes which I now have managed and I'm under control so the fact that I don't do the television means my life is a lot more manageable 
that I get to watch a lot of television in the evening. I watch my box sets. I watch my sport. I took up golf three and a half oh, years yeah, ago. Yeah, of course. And I, to be honest, I give as much thought to my golf swing as I yeah. give to a lot of other things. Uh, so I ha- every What's your time handicap I, now, Matt? Oh, embarrassing. I'm not good. But I went out and had a lesson last Tuesday night, which was really interesting in that I hadn't really been taking lessons. I've been picking up things ad hoc with people I was playing with. And this lesson made me go, oh. And when I started doing what I was shown to do, the ball was going a lot further and a lot straighter. So I'm now hopeful. But anyway, leaving that aside, when it comes to books, every time I do a book, I sort of say to myself, that's the last one. I'm never doing it again. I'm like a woman who keeps going back having children and after childbirth saying, I'll never do that again. I do. Um, and in the last few years, I, the book that probably I'm proudest of, proud is a bad word, but anyway, it's the most satisfies the worst word. I don't know. But anyway, the book that I liked the most was my Tony O'Reilly biography maximalist. of 2015. Yeah, The Maximalist. And after that, I did the Michael O'Leary book. And while it's fine, I think it could have been better. I really enjoyed doing Jamie Heaslip's uh, ghostwriting his autobiography that was real fun to do and that was a much more compressed time but again it was while I was doing the television so I thought I was going to take a break for a while and then during Covid I did have the idea for Who Really Owns Ireland because it was a long Covid walks taking my dog Scout out on my own or going with friends and changing the routes every day within the two kilometres to five kilometres and seeing all the new things that have come up and sort of realising more that paying more attention maybe during COVID to what had changed over the past decade and I got interested in all that so I started researching I started going and talking to people I started trawling through the internet to find out about things and talking to more people and then as it happened I still wasn't convinced about it. It was a possibility of a TV documentary that didn't happen. And then publisher came to me and my agent decided to have an auction amongst publishers and we did the contract. And then I just got dug into it. And I love, I I would sort of have music on at home. I would have my uh, playlist on. And when I'm really into writing or researching, I just completely, it just, the music sort of almost fades away into oblivion. I'm in the zone. I'm doing it. I can get a few hours out of it mobile phone put away not wasting time death scrolling through Instagram or through Mm. Twitter or whatever and uh, I just love that and I love meeting people I love talking to people I love finding out things and part of me as I get older as well is that I'm very conscious of the fact that I've noticed this in a lot of other journalists of a generation ahead of me that they became so certain in their own convictions that they knew And I'm determined not to go that way. I'm determined to continue finding out, to find out new things, to not believe that I know. So that's why the book Who Really Owns Ireland is not, and I was very grateful to Joe Duffy this week tweeting that it was a book without bias or without trying to put a spin on it, that there was old-fashioned work of journalism setting out the facts. Here you are. Here owns the country. This is how it happened. This is what it does to us. Make up your own mind on the back of it. Okay. And I'm going to come to you about the sort of the content of the book in a minute. Yeah. But again, I'm forming a picture here. So you're in a room in Rathmines. Yeah. There's music on in the background. Mm-hmm. It's fading away in the distance because you can't, you're, you're immersed. Yeah. Are you writing for three hours? Yeah, I could, I could end up doing anything between 90 minutes and three hours. Tapping yeah. away on a computer? Yeah. Are you revising, redrafting? Yeah, you keep working away. Or do you, just, do, do you splurge and then go back to that the next day? It depends. Either. I I love when you get into a flow and there have been times on some of the books and it would have been particularly on a couple of sections in the O'Reilly book and it happened once or twice in the 
uh, who really owns Ireland as well, where you suddenly get into a rhythm or a flow mm. and you knock out a few thousand words, which actually does not need much editing. Mm. And it's very satisfying. It's nice. And that's that a nice word happens. flow as well when that yeah. happens. And are there people coming in and out of the room or do they know not to? I don't think they want anything to do with me. <laughs> No, no, you've reached that stage of your fatherhood. No, no, actually, funnily enough, I I actually think as well that, and I was telling somebody else about this during the week, that um, I'm in a great spot now. I love the fact that particularly, I mean, the five children, but particularly my three daughters, who are all adults, that I have so much to talk to them about. And as they've got into the world of work, or my eldest girl is working in tech PR, a company called Beach Hut, and she, I talked to her about all the work she's doing with people and her clients. Nothing confidential, obviously, to them, but just to sorry, she's interested now in the world of business and stuff like that. Um, my second girl is doing a master's in biomedical engineering, but she's also done a year's work out and so chatting to her about all the stuff with AI and things. Mm. I have another daughter who's doing economics and finance in UCD, but she's on a year out in a venture capital firm as her third year in college. She's just back after in six months in Australia. And there's so much more to talk to her about now than there would have been previously. And I love the fact, and we've had lots of nights out recently, and Aileen's mother had her 90th birthday down, party down in Mill Street last weekend. There were 130 people at it and the kids had a ball at it meeting all sorts of different people be it cousins be it friends or their, their nana and the rest of it and stuff so yeah I mean I try to have as much I do have a lot of time with my family yes. yeah yeah. Um, and just back just rewinding there slightly because the diabetes thing uh, so I mean obviously Matt I mean, everybody, pretty much everybody that would even be familiar with Today FM or your work on TV knows how hard you work and and it's it's it, it's it's just part of who you are. It's you just love working. You're very productive, and you obviously work fast, and you're prolific. But for somebody who is that kind of person, you've had um, you've had an annoying call it an annoying number of health setbacks. You know, in 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 a way, in the sense that the the, the asthma. Yeah, I'm asthmatic. Yeah. Yeah, and you had some pneumonia. I've had I, when I had COVID last year, it developed into pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. and then this thing. This bloody yeah. diabetes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not trying to be maudlin or anything. I'm just going. Like, this is fantastic. What you're able to produce. The kind of um, the way you're able to get over the setbacks. So the diabetes. Like, was that a kind of a bit of a shock to you? And that was well, t- explain the feeling. I remember. Uh, I'm 57 now. Mm. And when I hit my 50s, one of my best mates says to me, oh, "You're into snipers, Ali." No. Yes. You know, 50 to 60, yeah, and yeah. You know, if you avoid things going wrong 50 to 60, you'll be fine home after that, then. home straight Prostate after that. Prostate cancer and all that sort of yeah. stuff, yeah. and now here I am, and I've cursed him a couple of times to his face, you bastard, if you hadn't <laughs> said that to me, I probably would have been all right. Yeah. So I suppose, I've always used to been almost the youngest doing things, like I was yes. very, I was the youngest national newspaper editor, I was appointed editor of the Sunday Tribune yeah. at the age of 30, mm. I've been, before that I've been business editor of the mm. Indo, and I sort of got on very quickly in my career once I came out of college, after sort of probably a slow start in college, I sort of blossomed, so to speak, when I got into the adult world of the workplace and really enjoyed it and I've always enjoyed it. So I suppose always regarding myself as the young fella, uh, middle age and ageing has not sat well particularly with me. Um, because it didn't suit your own 
kind of inherent personal self-image. Yeah, so maybe I feel myself that, you know, mentally I like to think of myself as 20 years younger than I actually am. But physically, mm, unfortunately, mm. no, that said, I'm reasonably fit. Oh, you are, yeah. And I go to my personal trainer twice a week. I think you know him, Paul Byrne and yeah. Body Byrne. And, you know, How are your buddies goes there as well, yeah. Is he Keith, still with them? He's, yeah, he's in some shape at the moment. He's in fantastic He's like a shape. rock. And his young fella Jay oh, is <laughs> built as, as well. As he calls himself, my son, Jay Duffy. He calls him by his second name. <laughs> Jay's a lovely fella as well. He's such a really nice fella. And he's doing brilliantly in the acting as well. Yes. Um, but Paul would have me like, you know, he really makes me work. So he says, like he would say, there are few enough people of my age who would be doing reps, rack pulls at 160, 170 kilos. And, you know, I'm lifting good, solid, heavy weights. Yeah. And, you know, keeping myself in shape. Uh, I'm on the Ozempic as well. Yeah, I was is, going to ask you about that. And yeah. is that the Ozempic is, the Ozempic is a, is a diabetic treatment. Yeah. But it it's also not, has... I'm not doing it as one of these... Um, uh, these people who are doing it just simply for weight loss, for aesthetic or narcissistic reasons. I'm on the Ozempic because I was prescribed it by my diabetes doctor. Mm. And uh, those who are taking supplies away from diabetics, I would cheerfully throttle at this stage. But it anyway, does have the it does have the uh, fortunate side effect of helping you to so it suppresses diet uh, appetite. Yeah, it does, and I was I'm on the Ozempic. I'm. Anywhere between, depending on the fluctuations, obviously, but I'm 10 to 12 kilos lighter than I was yeah. before I started it. Yeah. And I'm down now, I'm down at the weight I was when I got married 28 years ago. Mm. And I sort of slimmed down for that because you know the way you, you slimmed down to get mm. married and mm. stuff like that. So I'm down at that weight. So I'm down at a good weight that I would have been in my 20s. Yeah. So I'm sort of looking after myself today and most days. I mean, I walked in here today. Yeah. I religiously always get my 10,000 yeah. steps in. I try to get 100,000 in the week by adding in, of course, yeah. the extra walking at golf on Saturday yeah. and Sunday. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm conscious of getting older. Yes, I am conscious of getting older. Um I hopefully it's added a little bit more maturity, if not necessarily wisdom. It may have made me a little bit calmer in all the stuff that I do, but I'm determined that it doesn't sate my desire yes. to do new things. And that's why, for example, I'm doing podcasts yeah. because I find them really enjoyable to do. So Magnified is, and you've been in my at my house and my kitchen table as mm. a guest on Magnified, and I learned stuff from you that day I never knew about you, which I just I loved having the fact that you felt comfortable enough to chat. Uh, and there's so many other people who've done that And partly because well. I was in your, partly because I was in your house actually. I think that's it. I mean, no. that's the trick. I mean, I know that um, it goes on the Go Loud platform as well as other podcast platforms and, you know, Boris said, we come in and do it in the studio and we'll get cameras and I said, no, that's not the point of it. The point of it is to have people feeling comfortable in my kitchen over a cup of coffee where they will actually open up and chat. And geez, I've had some, I mean, like I'm delighted with a lot of the interviews mm. that I've had recently. And people still tell. come up to me and actually talk about the interview I gave to you because they've obviously heard it and or, or were passed it on, it was yeah. passed on to them as well, you know. Um, so that was great. The, and, and, and it's going, and it's going very well. But like, do you consciously think when, when you take on new, new, um, projects whether it's a book or podcast or, or a new job or a new offer do you do you do you say okay I'm, I'm earning a living for my family and I'm paying a mortgage yes and I'm looking at a year-long let's say trajectory here or two year long trajectory are going so I want to make sure that I make um, a, a good living 
to, yes. to take care of all the things that need to be taken care of. Bear in mind, I've got a big family and all that sort of stuff and everything is expensive. Or do you go, um, I still, as I, as I go through life, I, I want, I'm conscious of wanting to reinvent, reinvent myself all the time. It's, it's a mix it, of things. Kind of balance of that. Yeah, so you, yeah, do, you, yeah. do you try to do that as well, do you? Look, as far as I'm conscious, I grew up at home with my parents and I was the only child and we grew up in a small house in Cork. My father never had a car because the work that he did, he was a confectioner. He used to get on his bike every morning at half past five and be in the Marina Bakery at work for six o'clock. He was due to finish at two o'clock. He often worked extra hours to do overtime. He also did things, nixers at home, doing stuff like wedding cakes and things like that to earn enough to make a living. And I was very conscious then when it came to his retirement years that you know, they, he didn't have enough saved to be able to look at when he fell into ill health and my mother fell into ill health. So I suppose all of that has had an impact on me. So there would be definitely a desire and sort of thing that I learned from him about the need to provide and to need to have a bit of a safety net there as well. So that's one thing, right? But the other thing is, is that with the opportunities that I have, I want to make the most of them and to continue to do new things and continue to be interested. So, you know, even though books can be extremely tiring and time-consuming, I think there will be more books, right? As I love doing them. And the majority of things that I do, actually all the things that I do, I love. It's why 21 years on The Last Word, I love bringing to the audience, and it's all for the audience, all for the listeners, a mix of information and entertainment at the end of the day, which will be a window to the world for them, hopefully. That'll give them an awful lot more things to think about, to talk about, to enjoy. Um, and hopefully we manage to achieve that on a regular basis, myself and the team around us. So I really, really enjoy doing that. I enjoy doing the podcasts as well from the point of view of bringing material to people. They can choose to listen to if they want to or not. But if they do, hopefully they'll like it. And it's the same with things that I write. That it gives me... An I love newspapers. I grew up loving mm. newspapers. So I still love writing for newspapers or now the digital versions of them. And I suppose intellectually, I like the challenge of writing things in a clear way that people will read. But also hopefully making them, giving them extra information to think about, about the people I'm writing about or the topics that I'm writing about. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's clear to me that you've always been conscious of reinventing yourself as well. And almost with the back thought in your mind that you're going, I know what people think of me. They think I'm this and this and this. So I'm going to show them I can do this. I think you've always been a bit like that as well. I, I don't know about that, but I suppose... You don't know I, about that? No, I don't know if I'm, that's necessarily the motivation that I want to show people. Anything. But I, I'll tell you, I suppose I gave up a job I loved to come here to Today FM. I loved editing the Sunday Tribune. I had six and a bit brilliant years doing it, working with fantastic people. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the paper. Now, I gave it up because of a couple of reasons. I mean, there were a lot of issues in relation to the printing of it and the business backing of it from independent newspapers at the time, independent news and media. And I didn't feel I could develop it the way I wanted to. So I was becoming entirely frustrated. So when the opportunity to do the radio came up, I took it. You mean the lack of business support or financial yeah, support? Yeah, the, the, the Indo was not in 100% committed to the Tribune. Yeah. It was a sort of a sideline okay. type thing. It was a sort of a block against other competition. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that we were putting so much, and to be honest, if there's a period in my life where I probably put too much into something, it may have been that time in the Tribune. Mm. That was probably when I worked harder than any other time. 
And I suppose there was a realisation that when it was waking me up at four o'clock in the morning and I was worried about how the bills were going to be paid and how the staff were going to get paid when I realised I'm giving too much of myself to this, to something that I don't actually own. Yeah. And that realisation made me feel, okay, maybe I need to step back a little bit from this. And when the opportunity came up to come here to Today FM, I said, okay, I'm going to do that. Now, I never expected to get 21 years Mm. out of doing this programme. Mm. And I'm thrilled that I have and that I've come through a lot of dips along the way as Mm. well, highs and dips. And in the last five to six years, we've been on a steady upwards trajectory of finding the right balance and mix to appeal to the audience and the listenership. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I'm pro- I, I know at the moment I work hard, but I do have my golf at the weekend and things like that. When I wouldn't have had that when I was in the Tribune, I mean, I would have given up playing football at the time and I would have struggled to have time with my young children. And I think I've done better since I left the Tribune over the last 21 years. I've been there for my family. Okay. You you alluded there to the, the 21 years in the, mm. the, the last word and you said there have been dips and verges and everything. I mean, I think at the beginning you got a little bit despondent. Was that right? That oh, geez, the, I had a really bad first I mean, you took, over from, you took over from Dunphy. Yeah, who, the legend Damon Dunphy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, like he had deserved all the plaudits that he had got. He had carved out a niche for the programme which was extraordinarily successful and he did brilliantly in it. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Dunphy's programme I suppose one thing that's slightly overlooked was it only ran for about five years. Yes. It didn't have the stellar figures that people think it did. It had good figures, uh, but it was an agenda setter. Yes. And I think that's what made it one of interesting. So, for example, I remember I obviously listened to it all the time. I contributed to it a lot because I used to do the comedy with Stuart and used to ask me to do various different voices in that. And that's the guy, Stuart did Navin Man. And, um, and Stephen Price, who was a great guy as well, the producer. Stephen, yeah, of course, Stephen. Best boy. <laughs> head boy. Head boy. That was head boy. Head boy, he was called uh, by, yes. by Eamon. Um, but... Um, even though it only lasted five years, it was an agenda setter. And I remember that day I tuned in, I remember RTE was doing seven stories because that's what they could do. We go to Carlo now for the latest story on the ploughing. We go to here, for the we go to China now to join our genre. And now, later we're coming up to the Gaza, we'll go to this. And Dunphy was just there. I'm in Justice Flaherty's house and we're doing a whole show on him. And they just did the whole show yeah. on him. And that's where you go, wow, they're just ballsy. They're just taking a... So you took over from this kind of iconoclastic, legendary programme. And um, I think in your own words, you felt that a, that a little despondent a little bit well, at no, the beginning. Well, the, fig- the figures the... crashed. Did they? Yeah. I didn't know that. They did, yeah. And, you know, I have to say, pay tribute to Willie O'Reilly, who used to be the chief executive here. And I know subsequently, because I found this out from other people, there would have been people on the board saying, that's not working. Yep. Get rid of him, get totally. somebody else. That's the way it is. And Willie was, no, no, stay with it. This is going to come right. It's going to come right. And it did. And we hit a dip and we went down quite significantly. And then we started building back up and we built it back up so we had bigger numbers yeah. than Eamon ever had. Yeah. And then the numbers started sliding away again because of a combination of things. I think when the economic crash came and people just weren't listening to radio as much because they didn't want to hear serious news and it fell. And then over recent years, we've built it back up again. And we, we were very fearful that COVID was going to be a disaster for us because suddenly people wouldn't be in their cars on the way to and from work. And actually it turned out to be a godsend because mm. people were at home and they actually started listening to the radio more at home and they listened for longer. 
and then we were worried when COVID ended. Oh God, they're all starting to go back to work now. Will we lose them now? And right. we've continued the upward right. trajectory. Yes, we have. Yeah, been, yeah, I can. Which has been really, really good. Now, I mean, some of that comes from obviously there's the legacy of handover from the other programs. I mean, so I always say it's really important that you have a great sketch in the morning and that Ian has a really good show because if people are in the cars, that they get out of their car, they've been listening to Day FM, they switch off the car so that when they get back into the car after work, the station that immediately pops up. <laughs> for them is Today Correct, FM. Yeah. So you are very important to the last word audience. That's the mechanics of radio. It is the mechanics of radio. I mean, Willie always said, I was only 26, I was 27 when I came into this building. Yeah. And Willie said, there's an old expression, Mario, win the morning and you win the day. Yeah. And it's an old American expression in radio yeah. and, and it's the truth because people will literally leave it on the dial and go, I'll, I'll even leave it on the station so that it'll be back there tomorrow morning. Exactly. <laughs> So, okay, um, brilliant. And the show is going from strength to strength. And I'm a, personally, I'm a huge fan of the show, but lots of people are. I mean, it, it takes a different route than the RTE show. So I think it has its own completely unique identity. And um, I've always as well remarked, Matt, not to butter you up too much, but I've always remarked that although you're very well versed on economics and politics and sport, all sorts of sports and everything, actually one of your main um, uh, skills is is your empathy and personal um interviews with people I, and I find that's this one surprising thing that emerged about you for me in the last 15 years or so this how empathetic you are and possibly it's to do with um, your own family and having a having a big kind of family and maybe maybe your relationship your, 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 you your know, own family that's probably very probably true because empathy is not something that I suppose you would automatically normally associate with an only child and I suppose a number of things would have helped me develop as a person, but also as an interviewer. One of the most important things I would say my, for my four years in college was not necessarily the four years in UCC studying commerce, although I had one great tutor, Theo Dorgan, uh, who was brilliant for helping me understand how to write. But uh, that's Theo the poet. But... I spent four years where I was playing rugby with Sunday as well, who I played with all the way up as a kid. And then I started working in the bar in my first year in college to make a few extra quid. And actually working behind the bar was terrific for actually getting to know how to talk to people and how to deal with different people. So, in fact, my daughters have been great about going out during their time in college and getting work as waitresses or in bars or whatever, and also developing that ability to talk to people of all different kinds and at different levels of sobriety as well. So that was really important. But yeah, I suppose the other thing is, is that, you know, having grown up in my own head, trying to understand all the other little people as they get older in my own house, what's going on in their heads. And so it's maybe just trying to be empathetic towards it rather than dictatorial. And hopefully that then does show in the interviews that I actually would do with people, yeah. Yeah, because people intrinsically know there's a difference between uh, pretending to listen and pretending to be interested and actually doing it. It, it, There is a difference. There's one or two prominent broadcasters who I will definitely not name, but I watch them at times or listen to them and I think, you're not interested, you're pretending. And that makes me think, well... If you're not interested, why should I be interested as a viewer in watching this listen or listening to this interview? Interesting that you said viewer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not listener. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. No, no, no. But you are, you are, you are genuinely listening. And in fact, that's something I'm, funnily enough, since I started doing this, I was, I was listening, I was listening, I was listening, but actually I wasn't listening enough. And actually as far as long, and, and Matt, this is an interesting thing. As more, as, as much as I've gone through it, I, I find the skill is listen even more. Absolutely. I, I have become, so I'm less prone to interrupting than I used to be as an interviewer. I listen a lot more. And funny, actually, it was something Ivan Yates said to me when we were working together on the television show. And something, I think maybe, well, the podcast is different to the TV show. It's very different, actually. But what he realised was, was that Ivan is one of the most prepared people I've ever come across. He has to research everything and he has his opinions set out and his point of views. And then he delivers them forcefully. Whereas I would tend more to listen, as he says, and he noticed this on the television and he's preparing for his next big intervention. And then he'd realise that I'm listening to what the person is saying and I suddenly pick up on a word and I go, hang on, what do you mean by that? So I, I he has his prepared questions. I don't. I, I don't do interviews with lists of questions. I stop that Oh, about a year when I was at my worst on the radio because I had everything prepared and scripted. I threw away the scripts. I was persuaded by somebody to throw away the scripts and just rely on myself and my intuition. So when I'm trying to interview people and trying to do a couple of things, yes, okay, I might have a series of key words written out and I have an idea in my head of the things that I want to and I've read the briefs provided to me by my great production team in The Last Word uh, by Dermot, by Liz, by Orla and Evine. But I'm also listening to what the person is saying and then I'm developing those and then I'm getting back to where I wanted to be in the first place rather than letting them divert me away from the questions I wanted to ask in the first place, if that doesn't sound too complicated. Yeah, it does. It just means you're immersed. Yeah, maybe that's yeah, it. Yeah, that's all it is. Two, two, uh, two words written down here. You said words, keywords. Uh, the books. I just wanted to get back to the reinvention for a second. Try and try, without pr- prying, try and tell our listeners and me as well, um, Books are the hardest thing you do, I think. Yes. But they aren't necessarily the biggest pair. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. No, nowhere near it. Exactly. And so books are not just a labour of love, but they are also a calling card, aren't they? They are also, well, let me tell you what I think they are, then you can disagree or not. They're your trademark. They're your saying, I'm Matt Cooper. I stand for something. I have a brand. It's in. It's a kind of, a, it's a, it's a brand uh, uh, exercise, I think. It's um, it's like, for example, it's not it's it's not unrelated, even to something as seemingly trivial as your Twitter uh, uh, personality. Because Twitter, you're very kind of big on Twitter and well respected, have a lot of listeners or, or a lot of followers and stuff. So actually, that's a kind of a brand as well. You're trusted. Do you see? Yeah. And so a book thing is about trust and trademark and brand as well. So. That's why I'm trying to fish into the book thing going because books, they per word, per per page, it ain't paying you. No. Um, I think the thing with books is I've always had a love of books since I was a child, right? I always would have read avidly, read loads of books. Well, that said, I would have been reading fiction rather than nonfiction. But I suppose I always loved the idea that I could be a writer. That would have been, you know, okay, I wanted to be a footballer. I was never good enough. Um... I wanted to be a journalist. I became a journalist. I wanted to be a writer. So, yeah, let's go ahead and become a writer. I wanted to be a broadcaster and I got to become a broadcaster. So 
anything that didn't involve athletic ability that I wanted to do, maybe I've been able to do it. And I've maybe would I have preferred it had I been a good footballer or rugby player or whatever and stuff. Who knows? But the books were just, I suppose, maybe a thing from childhood and wanting to do. And I suppose the thing is, there's a permanence about a book. Yeah. Now, that said, funnily enough, anything you do now in podcasts or in radio is archived in the digital era. And what they used to describe newspapers has been like the fish and chips wrapper. That's right. It's not that anyway. No. Because everything you write, actually, now it leaves a permanent footprint. And Whereas be it, it used to, to be. Yeah. yeah. But there's something about a book and there's something about the actual thrill of the physical delivery of the books. When I get the box from the mm. publisher and I open it up and I take out the printed copy of the book. Well, that's what you see from everybody, isn't it, when they publish a book? Oh, you see the Twitter picture yeah. when they when their bag it's of books comes in. Now, that said, you're never happy with a book. Mm. I like every book I've written, I would love to go back and rewrite. Mm. I would love to change things about it. Mm. I'd like to change the structure. I'd like to leave things out. I'd like to put new things in. And I've spoken to a number of authors about this Mm. and they all go through the same sort of thing. It's not good enough. It's never good enough, but you have to learn to let it go Mm. and you have to learn to move on to the next one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And how many have you written now? Well, if you take the fact that I've wrote Jamie Heaslip's autobiography yeah. for him, which I love doing, like Jamie would have come around to the house. Uh, it was actually, it was advised to me, Michael Moynihan from the Irish Examiner, who's written some great sports autobiographies, including Pat Spillane's recent one. Uh, Michael said to me, look, he said, you can spend so much time doing this. He said, like, do your research, rest of it, and then do 20 hours of interviews and get the story in the 20 hours of interviews and write that up. So that's the approach I took with Jamie. And I would have, you know, gone back and went through the archives and all about the matches and stuff to give me the material, the research to prompt him in the interviews. And then we we, we did, I think, about 10 two-hour sessions where he would sit uh, in, in my front room with my dog draped around his neck. She used to love sitting up on top of him. And uh, we would yap through and then I would have got the transcripts of the interviews and then reworked it and put it into the shape. And I found that fascinating, trying to get inside the mind of a professional athlete in an era when that was only becoming the thing in Irish rugby. And I love doing that. So that was that type of book. And that's the type of thing I might mind doing again at some stage. And then there's been five other books. There was Who Really Runs Ireland, which was the first, 2009. Who Really, How Ireland Really Went Bust in 2011. This one, Who Really Owns Ireland, which in some respects is a follow-on to the original book. And then two biographies in the middle of it, which is uh, Tony O'Reilly and Michael O'Leary and... I think I might return to biographies. Yeah. I love writing biography. Okay, and I say this, I'm still on books, because, and I say this with the best will in the world and with great affection, of course, but one of the things that people probably don't know about Matt, because uh, you just wouldn't unless you knew him, is that Matt is a great kind of, in the best possible way, really good gossip. You're really good gossip. <laughs> you love the gossip. You love the industry That's gossip. I'm a journalist. You love the, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's an occupational hazard. But Matt is very prone to sidle up to you when you're in the office and he does this particular face and, and a sound of his voice as well when he goes into what I would call cork gossip mode so you'd go hi Matt how are you and he'd kind of look around the room the, the eyes would dart and then the, the lips would close as if they're not moving and he'd go I'm grand does he hear about Michael O'Leary does he does he hear about Michael O'Leary you know what Matt I can't hear you the eyes are darting <laughs> and so then you'd find out uh, the only other person that talked to me like that was Louis Copeland actually you'd walk, okay. you'd walk into his shop and, and it's understandable yeah. you'd walk into his shop and he'd go Mario how are you 
and you go, Louis, and you say, come here to me, what are you saying, Louis? I can't. And of course, he'd be very aware of people that might yes. he might know walking his So you um you have that kind of um that kind of you love the the industry gossip and you do that. And so that to wit, that's what I wanted to ask you. My next question: Have you thought of writing an autobiography? No. Should you think about writing an autobiography? And I say that because of maybe not an autobiography. What about a memoir? Because considering what you've been through, the stories you've have, the people you've written about. The process of writing about famous people, famous people, businessmen, sportsmen, the people you've dealt with in newspapers, the pe- your radio career. Uh, it's quite colourful. I mean, you know, have, would you not think of writing a memoir? No. No. And why not? Oh, number of reasons. Um, one is, it would almost like be signifying that I think I'm coming to the end. Hmm. So maybe come back and ask me that question in 20 years time. Mm, mm. Okay. Secondly, well, I'm not interesting enough. So, yeah, maybe. But it's usually the people who think they're not interesting enough, who are interesting enough. Let the readers decide if you're interesting enough. You've had a tremendous, you're having a tremendously interesting innings. I'm having a very enjoyable time Mm. for myself, definitely. I know I don't think so. Okay, let's move on from this then um, and let's get on to the broad subject of who really owns Ireland. This was written by you, um, uh, as you said, kind of having done COVID walks and changing your COVID walks and having to look around and really doing that thing that enough of us don't do, which is look up and look around and look up at those buildings and go, who owns those? Why, why are they here? What's happening? What's it's the, funny, actually, yeah? only a couple of weeks ago, over Christmas, an alien and myself decided to walk into town, which is a real surprise because alien normally into the car wants to drive. And I go, no, no, we'll walk. So we took a walk and we were walking down through Portobello and there's all these, in Charlemagne Street, there's a whole new apartment blocks and commercial where Amazon has gone into. And alien, God, how long are these here? Mm. And I'm going, well, they've been built over the last five, six years. You can see you drive past them. No, I'm with year. Aileen. I, I would not. Yeah, so then we yet. walked around the corner and we walked. I brought her down on towards the top of Harcourt Street. And I said, what was there? What's, <laughs> what's gone there? Like, that's the old Garda station, yeah. the enormous Garda station. Yeah. That was demolished months ago. Yeah. You drive around the corner here all the time. The hoarding has been up. Yeah. The cranes have been there. Oh. Yeah. So... She's not the only one like no, that. No, but it's like Jason Bourne. It's Jason Bourne goes into a room. Yeah. And he's the only one in the room that knows where every exit is and what how many pounds the guy in the corner weighs. Because yeah. he's trained to do that. So you've trained yourself to now look around and... and or look up. Look up, yeah. Look at these buildings. And look look at ways at times. I always still find fascinating that sometimes if you look at certain angles and suddenly you see a building in the distance and it's perfectly framed by the street and I go, oh, that's why they built that there. And it can be quite distance off. That actually works when you're looking. In the yes. I, I love the physical infrastructure right. um, of the city. I love looking around. I love looking at new things. I was even talking to somebody else earlier today about Cork and just you know looking at all the changes that have taken place in Cork in the 35 years since I left. And as part of the book, I did this. I did a couple of tours around Cork City. Uh, one when I went for an early morning run and went around, panted my way around the place, but saw uh, various things. Oh, that's been built there. Why the hell is that derelict? Why is there not been the convention centre built in South Main Street outside the old Beamish and Crawford as it was meant to be? Um, down around the marina, various places and stuff. Always looking and seeing. And I love change. And I think it's one of the things, and this is a big factor in the book as well. 
I mean, I hate the way people object to change. A lot of change is necessary. And then an awful lot of the complaints against change is hypocritical. I mean, you just take very close to here, the St. Stephen's Green Shopping Centre. And there's a big planning application at the moment to dramatically change it. And some of those who are loudest in their voices condemning this, if you go back and check the records of the 1980s, were loudly condemning the construction of the thing, saying it would look ugly, it would look terrible. Now they're saying it must be kept. What's replacing it would look ugly, look terrible. As it happens, I can see exactly why the Stephen's Green Shopping Centre would be changed by its owners, because it doesn't work as a commercial entity. It's laid out wrong. So it needs to change. Okay. And change is a good thing. So that's just one example. Yeah. Others, I mean, I, the amount of times that people give out, we don't have enough housing. My young people, my children won't be able to get a house. They won't be able to live near me. They're going to be living 20 miles away. Well, then stop objecting to the building of new houses in your area. Mm-hmm. Stop objecting to apartment blocks. Stop trying to tell me that what you're going to have there is going to be ugly or will be a blight on... Uh, the facilities. I mean, how many housing estates are there around the country now? And Dermot Bannon said this to me years ago on television, and I used it in the book and also in a piece I wrote last Sunday for the Business Post. How many housing estates are there f- surrounded by three and four bedroom houses where the children used to come out onto the green areas in front and used to play? And they've all grown up and left, and their parents are behind, and maybe one is gone and the other's left. So you have people in three and four bedroom houses, and all this lovely space in front of them is unused. Now, I would love to see situations where you had housing built which was suitable for older people and that housing then in those estates becomes available to be purchased by the families who can move in there got it but we don't want that change no so this is part of that is the nimbyism issue isn't it yeah absolutely I mean is that part of a selfishness but is that part of a lack of community spirit in Ireland is I mean if I was to say to you sure it's the same everywhere Matt would you agree or would you think that we, we suffer from it badly here in Ireland I think we suffer from it badly do you enough, is that yeah. a small mindedness no, I mean, is it a parochialness is, I mean if you even go look at the moment the immigration issue for all of the people who are complaining about opening up facilities to others less fortunate. There are so many people who are so good. I mean, you don't hear about the groups that actually have gone out and have found places for people who provide... I know somebody I know, just before Christmas, he got a group of Ukrainians uh, and offered the use in his house of his kitchen so that they could actually cook their Christmas dinners in advance, their foods, and they would have everything ready because they were in hotel accommodation over the Christmas period, but they were able to reheat all the food they had prepared for Christmas. So he turned over his kitchen in his house for a day to these people to be able to do it. That type of thing happens all over the place. Mm. And you hear great stories of things that I wish don't get the same publicity as the wankers who decide to burn out places. Mm. I mean, if you could possibly just explain to me, like I'm a two-year-old, the the who really owns okay. Ireland and, and if I can I even put a proposition to you before you do it so that gives you something to latch on to is part of this that we had an economic crash everything went cheap and BlackRock and all those big financial investors came in bought in bulk bought them for half nothing and now rented them out is part of that that's part of it okay but look let's take it I think we all consider we own Ireland we the people own Ireland well private property tends to own most of Ireland right Individuals, families, businesses own little bits and pieces and chunks. Some own more than other. We have common things that we share, like the roads and whatever yeah. and stuff and the parks. But 
The reality is the bulk of the country is owned by others who either rent it out to us to use or allow us to use it on a grace and favour basis. Okay. We had a major switch in ownership in the early 21st century in the prosperous era and a lot of Irish people started buying up things and then we had the crash and so what's happened is an awful lot of that has had to be sold to repay the debts and an awful lot of foreign money has come in and then I suppose what I'm questioning in relation to all of that is what desire does that foreign money have to make Ireland better a better place for us all to live in Some of it is doing good, some of it is not doing so much good. I'll give you another small example. And this came up during this very week. There's a big ESRI report on nursing homes. And we are facing a major crisis in years to come in relation to care for older people. We're all living longer, but we're often living with ailments. So we have more people over the age of 85 than we've ever had before. One in five people, stats could be wrong here in this, but we're doubling the number of over 65s by the age, by the time 2030 comes along. You know, one in five will be over that age. We talk about the pensions time bomb, but we're also going to have a nursing homes time bomb. So who owns the nursing homes? Do you think the state is providing enough nursing homes? It is providing nowhere near enough. 5,000 nursing home beds provided by the state, 27,000 by the private sector in Ireland. Is that enough? It's not enough now. Is it going to be enough in 10 years' time, 20 years' time? No, it's not. So when I'm looking at that topic as one of my topics and who really owns Ireland, where's the money come from to provide all these nursing homes in the future? Well, at the moment, it's coming from France. Hmm. And it's coming from other EU countries. And they saw from the, the corporate section. Oh, corporate. Yeah. And they, but although, funny enough, the main French owner got itself into bother in France and has effectively been taken over by the state, which means the biggest provider of private nursing home care in Ireland is the French government. Okay. <laughs> right? Who knows okay. these sort of things, Yeah, right? no, they don't. Right? So that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. Of all the things that are essential to the way we live our lives in this country... Who is provide? Who owns the assets? Hmm. And that's what the book is about. Okay, that's just one example. Uh, you are a obviously a, a you question politicians on a daily basis on the last word, and now this new um, podcast you have, um, which uh, oh the one with Ivan, path, I've forgotten about path that. to power. Yeah. which owes nothing at all to Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart. Oh, God, no, politics. we're not aping them at all. No, I know that, no, but that's no, why no. I said make, that's, that was a complete sort of make sure that nobody thinks that, which is another great podcast, by the way. It's very enjoyable. Alistair Campbell is, is terrific and so is Rory Stewart. And, 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 and obviously you and Ivan are doing this podcast to make money, I mean, not to make money, but to... Uh, to because well, there's the, a bit of that. I know, to yeah. year the, for the year that's in it. It's going to be a massive yeah. year. There's going to be elections in... And, ter- sorry, and there's fun in that. There's fun in that. I mean, and I will be covering all these elections in detail in yeah. the last word. In in a different way but you know yourself podcasts allows something different even what we're doing in your podcast is not something I could ever do in the last word I couldn't have the time to no, spend no because there's ad breaks there's news people's attention span so this is more niche smaller audience what you do what I do on Magnified and then in Path to Power I think we can provide an entertaining yes. as well as deeply informative Guide to the politics of the year. But having said that, you're also um, pr- prognosticating uh, quite a lot, and and that's fantastic. Ivan is. Well, you both you both are. I'm, so I'm that, a little bit, not as well, much. Well, now that's why you have to do me a favour then, because I know you say I ask the questions and you ask the questions on the last word, but I'm asking a question now. But because of the year that's in it, yeah, we've got to look ahead to this year because anybody who's even remotely interested in politics, and I'm. I devour American politics and UK politics as much as I can, as much if not more than Irish politics, believe it or not. Um, 
uh, and uh, so I'd have to ask you a few questions and they're very basic. Does Trump win in 2024 in your mind? Possibly, but I remain hopeful. The optimist, optimist in me remains hopeful that he will blow himself up somewhere along the year, although it seems that nothing he does can blow himself up. But that actually, in some respects, Biden's best hope might be that he's up against Trump rather than someone else. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, is that Trump, although he has this incredible support base, which sometimes baffles belief, there is a ceiling on it. Yeah. And that he also will motivate those who otherwise might not vote to get out and vote against him. That when they're voting in the presidential election, they may not necessarily be voting for Biden, who they think, Jesus, that's a referendum on Trump. It's a referendum, and it's about keeping this guy out because he is a threat to our way of life. For what it's worth, and I have no proof to back this up, so I can't have no, no legs to stand on. I personally believe the polls that consistently reveal what they reveal are wrong. I just believe they're wrong. I believe the polls. And I hope you're right. I believe the polls are wrong because I'm like you. I see that there are a number of, with all due respect to you, Claire, who's listening, who supports Trump, there are a number of crazies out there, right? Who believe deplorables? No, yeah, the deplorables who believe that Trump is God, that yeah. that he's the Messiah, right? But I think that number is about twenty eight percent, twenty between twenty five and thirty percent. Yeah, he's polling up to forty. There you go. And I don't understand that. So I, I don't. And I think that they're wrong. I think the polls are wrong. Anyway, that's that's. It's only a brief question. Uh, will there be an Irish election this year? I think probably. When? I think I suspect November. Um, yeah. Ivan thinks I'm utterly stupid in saying this. I have two reasons behind it. One he agrees with the other one. He looks at me like I've got two heads. The first one is it'll be soon after the budget and people have been told what extra money they're getting. That said, that doesn't necessarily always transfer into votes because people just sort of expect it. They expect to be bribed with their own money and don't thank those who do the bribing. But that's one thing. The second thing is I do think, and this is where Ivan thinks I'm an idiot and an idealist and the rest of it, but I think there's going to be a commentary around the American election and also potentially on a British election at the time as well, is that we can't reward change for the sake of change. I think the government is going to start trying to argue you can't be rewarding anti-immigrant independence. You can't necessarily, the government will say, and I'm not offering any support by saying this, but they'll say you can't risk the change inherent in Sinn Féin coming to power. And there's going to be this thing in the sort of the ether about standards and democracy and that while Ivan is going on about young people are going to demand change they want change there's going to be a significant older audience who are going to say mm, you know what maybe change isn't a good thing okay there's a few calls for you on the line again. I was wondering yeah. if that going to happen oh, yeah. there are a few calls are you ready to take them alright Michael O'Leary's on the line oh, uh, there just say hello to him Michael are you talking to me yet I'm absolutely gobsmacked listening to this conversation. First of all, you, you, the, the absolute spurious lies that you told about your little tome on me, that you... A hatchet job. It was a complete and utter hatchet job. Well, of course, I haven't even read it, but there's not enough uh, loo paper in the thing to keep me going for a long time. But anyway, listen, question for you, Cooper. There's a 737 MAX tomorrow leaving Dublin Airport. You'll be the only passenger. No, it has a bit of a dodgy door on the side. Free ticket? <laughs> Michael, you've never given him anything free in your life. He's gone. Um, Eamon Dunphy's on the line. Say hello to Eamon. Eamon, how are you keeping? Are you well? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good, man. And it's great to hear you. And it's great to hear 21 years 
you've been doing the last words. You inherited a great product and you initially you ran it into the ground, but then you recovered, stuttered at the start, and then now you're back. You're one of the greats, Matt. I kind of deviate between being jealous of you and then inviting you onto my podcast and telling you you're marvellous. It was great. You came on, you explained who really owns Ireland. Um, and it's actually been you all along, Matt, that you you, you, you own Ireland. But, you know, you're great. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. Yes. I have a podcast. The Stand. Yes. And I have a sponsor. Very useful. Well, I used to have a sponsor. Tesco. Tesco. Every little bit helps. And they gave me a lot of money. And then one day, I opened the Sunday Independent. And I see Matt Cooper and Ivan Yates. <laughs> and these two spoofers, spoofers, absolutely busted flushes, saying they've signed the biggest deal in the history of Western Europe in sponsorship. And we only had our tongue-in-cheek, Damon. I didn't see any tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I saw two straight-faced, political, busted flushes saying... We have signed the biggest deal in the history of podcasts. What I want to know, baby, is how much? <laughs> I, Ivan's gambling all the way home. Is it enough for Ivan to have a day out in Tipperary races? <laughs> <laughs> okay, jeepers. He's, he's a bit touchy there. Uh, Roy Keane's on the line. Say hello. Ah, Roy, how are you keeping by? You all right, like? Yeah, how's it going? Um, absolutely. I'm listening to this. I'm listening. I mean, you're from Cork. I'm I'm expecting more. I mean, I, I was listening. You had me. I was okay. It was good. I was enjoying the conversation. And then you go, you let yourself down again. You go, I tried football and I gave up. I wasn't good enough. I heard you. You weren't good enough. I, tr- I heard you. The literal words were, I tried football. I wasn't good enough. So I took up writing instead. So how do we know you're good enough at writing? You know, how are we supposed to think you're good enough for writing? You just gave up football. Oh, I can't do it. And then we say, oh, sure, I'll give out the old writing a go. How are we supposed to trust you that you're good enough for writing if you just give up things like this? You're from Cork. You're supposed to be from North Mon. North Mon. They were hard lads in there. Hard. Hard. That, that tackle's a bit over the top, right? You've, you've started, like, come oh. in, not just shin high, you've <laughs> taken my knees out. <laughs> knees, yeah. <laughs> They're dodgy enough, as I could see anyway, yeah. Very dodgy. And not lads giving out about his health issues all the time. Oh, I've this, I've asthma, I've asthma, I've you pneumonia, sorry, COVID, diabetes, ozempic. What the hell is wrong with you? Excuses. The amount of excuses I'm hearing, you know? I mean, Jesus. You're from Nartman. Okay, I, I, that's a pep talk I needed. Jeez, that was, I have to admit, that was a bit tough. That was rough. Matt, listen, um, thank you so much. And I think that what we wanted to do is, if you ever want to hear a previous interview that Matt did with me on this podcast, he did it a year and a half ago, yeah, maybe two I know, years ago. I, I effed and blinded. He did, actually. He did. And I haven't managed, I haven't done one swear word He didn't. Today. You, were, you were great. Today. It's a different interview today. Matt Cooper, thank you so much. Mario, thank you so much. My thanks to Matt for joining me, um, one of the few people we've asked on for the second time on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a favour. Tell one other person about it. You can contact me directly on mariorosenstock at gmail.com. Take care. See you same time next week. Next week, another old school Today FM legend, a voice from the past, Phil Cawley. <laughs>